Uh, Please rise for uh, the reading of God's word from Acts chapter 28, as recorded by Luke and preserved for us uh, by the Lord. After three days, he, Paul, called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my own nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning until evening. He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and 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 trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. This is a wonderful message, just so you know. Uh, For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for preserving your word this morning that is a message of hope against the constant whiplash effect of triumphalism and despair. Open our ears, eyes, hearts, and minds to receive the good news of the gospel this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So, as Leonard said, um, I minister in Washington, D.C. I was leading a Bible study on the Senate side to some senior staff folks on uh, Friday afternoon. We were going through uh, the book of 1 Peter, and, you know, there people there are stressed out, as you maybe you can imagine. Maybe you're stressed out about Washington, where it seems like the one thing that Washington, D.C. does really well, and they've done this well for a really long time, is they export emotional whiplash. That's the one thing that they seem super skilled at, right? It's the whiplash that comes from you moving very quickly from triumphalism and everything's amazing to despair because everything is horrible and there's just really nothing to be excited about. 
Washington has this way of just moving you back and forth between these things so fast that, you know, most insurance companies would cover the damage done to your upper neck just by the whiplash from this. And you know how this works. Uh, In 2016, maybe you were really hoping to uh, build back better, and instead you got Make America Great Again. And so you felt despair. Or, or maybe you were hoping to make America great again. You were super excited. You were triumphalistic about what amazing things were going to happen when we made America great again. And then in 2020, maybe you were hoping to make America even greater, but instead you got Build Back Better, and so you felt despair. But the people, maybe your neighbor was really hoping that America would not be great again, but that we would be able to build back better. And so they're super excited And then reality sinks in on both sides, doesn't it? Because there's still a budget crisis, there's still a debt crisis, there's still an immigration crisis, there's still a justice crisis. And whether you're trying to make America great again or build back better, none of those things seem to be getting any greater or better. And so you have folks in Washington and in churches all across the country who every four years or maybe every two years, I know we're about to elect a, a new governor, we just, we, the church just seems to move with everybody else in the country between triumphalism and despair. Despair and triumphalism. It's no different in the church than it is for most people outside the church when it comes to how we respond to what's going on in the country. But... Here's the crazy thing. If you just took Washington completely out of the picture, I feel like in a lot of ways, the church still moves back and forth between triumphalism and despair based completely on our circumstances. Maybe you just got a job promotion. Maybe your kid made the varsity team. Maybe uh, your kid scored really high on an ACT exam or you just got a promotion or you know you're going to be stationed here for another four years and you're super thrilled about that. And so you're like, yes, I can't imagine my life being any better than it is right now. This is the most amazing. Your Christmas letter is just going to be awesome. You're going to post it on Facebook and people are going to, oh my gosh, I can't believe their life is that awesome. And then the next day, you get written up for something you didn't really do because somebody else threw you under the bus. And now that promotion you thought you were going to get, you're not going to get it at all. Or your kid brings home an F. Or maybe your kid brings home some controlled substance. Or maybe as kids, listen up kids, okay? Because this sermon is for you too because you're in here and this, you know, try to give a little something for everybody. Maybe you're really disappointed because all of a sudden you wore the wrong thing to school and everybody decides that you're going to be the person that they're going to joke about and make fun about even though yesterday you wore the most amazing outfit to church or to school. Because school's like that. You ask your parents how junior high was. If they tell you junior high was amazing, I just want to tell you something. Your parents are lying for sure because it was not amazing. Okay. So it doesn't take what's going on in Washington to cause us this whiplash that moves us from despair and triumphalism. It can be our own lives. Do you ever feel like maybe you are 
if you've ever been like on a whitewater rafting trip or you're just on a, on a rafting trip at all, of any kind, and you're in the water, and you're just kind of carried along, and you think to yourself, man, I wish I, could, I wish I could somehow get out of this, but you're just like, there's just no way to seemingly get out of the rapids. And maybe you feel like that from time to time in your life, where you feel like your life is just moving, and maybe it's a dumpster fire, and you're in the dumpster, and the dumpster's going downhill at about 80 miles an hour, and you're like, I, there, there's no way to get out of this thing. What is going to happen? And maybe you don't live like that, but you know, it seems to me that I go back and forth between these two things. And so what causes this move between triumphalism and despair? Despair and triumphalism. I would say there's one thing that both of them are fueled by. And that's hopelessness. And so you're saying, okay, well, no, wait a second. I can kind of see how despair gets fueled by hopelessness, but I'm having a hard time seeing how triumphalism gets fueled by hopelessness. And hopefully, through this passage, we will see this. Because what we want to do is not be kind of moved around because of hopelessness, but we want to be grounded in hope. And so our passage this morning gives us just that opportunity. I'm going to say four things. First one is that Scripture expects an assessment of our circumstances. Scripture expects an assessment of our circumstances. Second, that Scripture expects a response to our circumstances. Scripture expects a response to our circumstances. Third, Scripture offers a proper assessment of our circumstances. Scripture offers a proper assessment of our circumstances. And finally, Scripture offers a proper response to our circumstances. So first, Scripture expects an assessment of our circumstances. Verses 17 through 22. Let's just, for a moment, let's look at Paul's circumstances. How are things going in Paul's life? After three days, so what's important here is it's not really three days. Paul's been in the judicial system of the Jews and then transferred himself out of the judicial system of the Jews because that wasn't looking good. And he said, hey, you know what seems better than this? The judicial system of the Romans. I'll just transfer myself out. So this has been going on for two years because if you look back, Paul got arrested in Acts 21. Okay, so now we're in Acts 28. Paul has just been being carried along by the judicial system up to this point. Why? Why is he under arrest? Well, he tells you he's proclaiming the gospel, which is a good thing, right? We all agree. Raise your hand if you think preaching the gospel is a good thing. Okay, that's right. It is. You all pass the exam. However, Paul is in jail for it. The Jews arrest him because they're not down with the gospel at all. They don't seem to like it. The last guy who preached the gospel, Jesus, they killed him. And so now Paul, their old, you know, kind of enforcer, you know, Don Corleone's right-hand man now is proclaiming the gospel to anybody who will hear it. And they're like, okay, this guy, we got to arrest him and shut him down. So they don't like him. They want him out of the picture. 
and the Romans don't want him around because he's upsetting kind of the political, everything is just fine. Like, stability is good if you're a Roman. Instability is bad. So they're having some theological debate over here with the Jews. They're like, we don't even understand what that is. We don't really care. But what we know is there's instability, and so this has got to go. So this is what's going on. Here's the complicating factor. Look at what it says. He says that uh, he, he asks to see them. And he says, we, they say, we have received no letters from Judea about you, but with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it's spoken against. This is a worst case scenario for Paul because he has no street cred. Paul doesn't get to say, hey, you know who I am? I'm the Apostle Paul. <laughs> you have the Apostle Paul in jail. You do not want to be this guy. You need to let me go right now because I'm kind of famous. No, he doesn't have any street cred at all. It says, we've not received any letters about you. We don't really know anything about you. Paul, Saul, pick a name and stick with it. Uh, also, uh, we have heard some things about this sect that you supposedly are with. Yeah, and we only hear bad things about it. So, what's up? That's his circumstances. Not awesome, right? If you just take the, take the situation and like, how are things going for Paul? Bad. They're going bad. He's in jail. He's been in jail for two years. Nobody likes him, and he's got no street cred. That doesn't seem awesome. This is where we are right now in our culture, right? You know how this feels. And and, uh, kids, you're going to grow up in a world. Listen to this, kids. It will not be cool for you at school to say that you went to go see Michael W. Smith in concert. Your your co-school people will go, who is that? And you'll say, well, I don't know. He was on tour with Petra and Amy Grant. And people will say, yeah, we don't know what that is. What, what is that thing you're talking about? Or you wear your Christian, cool Christian t-shirt. People go, what, what kind of a weird person are you? Or because here's what happens is when our neighbors move in, we say, hi, my name's Joe. I'm a Christian. And we walk away and we think, man, my neighbor now knows that I'm the one guy on this block he can trust because I told him I was a Christian. Except here's what your neighbor heard. I'm a homophobic, bigoted, anti-women, hypocritical, judgmental, overly political, and I'm only focused on getting you saved so I can get a little notch in my salvation belt. And I'm not making that up. They actually studied that demographically and they asked non-Christians, what do you think of Christians? And that's what they said. So when you interface with somebody, you're like, hey, I'm going to name drop. Hey, I'm a Christian. They're like, yeah, we don't know anything about you, but everything that we know about Christianity, everywhere it's spoken against. That's where we are today, right now. That's going to make life hard for us. And so we feel like we're kind of, as Christians, just kind of carried along. There seems to be no way to get out of this horrible situation because culture seems to be against us. But again, we don't need culture to do it. Just our own lives can do it. The lives of our kids, the lives of our parents, the lives of our siblings, our lives at work. 
can just make us feel like just, I just don't know how to get out of this. I've just been suffering and doing this for so long and it doesn't seem like anything's ever going to get better and I don't know how much longer I can keep this up. I kind of want to give up because I'm just so overwhelmed with despair that there seems to be no hope of anything ever changing. Why do I even get up in the morning? So scripture expects us to make an assessment. And we do. Every day we're making assessments based on our circumstances about what's going on in our life. And we respond accordingly, either with triumphalism or with despair. And second, scripture expects a response to our circumstances. And Paul responded. He calls them together. And he says that when they appointed a day... They came to him, and from morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. So he does the right thing. His circumstances are bad, and Paul does the right thing. He's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just preach the gospel, because that's the right thing to do. And so he preaches the gospel, and guess what happens? People leave. They're like, whatever. Whatever. We're out. We're, we're done with you. Plus, your message didn't seem very awesome. Like, if I heard you right, you said, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed perceive, see but never perceive. Your people's hearts have grown dull. With your ears you can barely hear and their eyes they have closed. I'm sorry, were you talking about me? Like, yeah, that's not, a, that's not an awesome message. I'm gone. Let me ask you a question. Was Paul saying the right thing? Was Paul doing the right thing? Was Paul responding the right way to his circumstances? Yeah. So why doesn't it go awesome for him? It goes badly for him. The external data, did I do the right thing? If it was based on the response, Paul's like, well, that didn't work. Man, I I feel like everything's going badly and I'm trying to do the right thing. And what this does is it exposes the reality that if all we do is base what we're doing on circumstances and our circumstances don't change or get worse, we are jumping into the despair pit. And again, parents, I mean, again, we could talk about Washington all day, but, you know, what about our own families? Right? We look at the lives of our kids or kids. You're looking at the lives of your parents. You're like, why do they just keep arguing all the time? Why can't mom and dad get it worked out? What is going on? I wonder if my parents are going to get divorced tomorrow. That'll be the worst possible thing that could ever happen. Or why, are my, why is my kid not walking with the Lord? What, what am I supposed to do? Everything I try seems to make it worse. How long can you keep this up? How much longer do I have to deal with COVID? Mask, no mask. It just, it just is overwhelming. And then you've got people in D.C. who come there believing that their job is to change the world. Interns are the funnest. Right? Because an intern shows up and they're pretty sure that by the end of the time in, in the summer, they will have been able to really take a key role in some nation-shaping agenda. They'll work on some really important legislation. And what they find themselves is wandering around the, the Capitol getting signatures for things and answering phone calls from people who 
you know, got nothing nice to say to them about anything, and getting coffee. And you're like, <laughs> and they say, hey, I thought I was going to change the world while I was here. And the chief of staff goes, yeah, have fun with that. I've been here 30 years. We've made like zero progress on that deal. So how do we, how do we keep going? So scripture expects an assessment. Scripture expects a response. But here's the good news. Scripture offers a proper assessment of our circumstances. So why isn't Paul filled with despair when he's been in jail for two years and he's preaching the gospel and people just walk out on him? Because Paul gets it. Paul understands it's not his mission to change the world. It's his mission to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called him out of darkness and into the marvelous light. That's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to proclaim the kingdom of God. That's all he's responsible for. And so he uses this passage in Isaiah 6. You know what this passage in Isaiah 6 is basically saying? Here, if you want to win friends and influence people, you want to be the prophet Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah gets picked by the Lord, and the Lord says, hey, go to Judah and tell them, you think it's bad now? It's going to be way worse next year. This, everything you see, I'm going to lay waste to it. You guys are all going to be captured, and you're going to be taken to the worst possible city you can imagine, Babylon. And you're going to be there for 70 years. Go tell them that. They're going to love you. <laughs> and Isaiah's like, uh, here, here I am, send me with that great message of hope. Right? And, and Paul's like, hey, listen, this is, this is the reality that I'm living in. My God is sovereign. Here's, here's what, if Paul was just looking on the external data, here's what Paul gets. Are they a Hebrew? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Triumphalism. I'm the best. Right? Then listen to this. So, Paul, that's amazing. You seem to be an amazing person, part of an amazing family, doing amazing things. How's that gone for you, Paul? Well, far greater labors, far greater imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a day and a night at sea. On frequent journey, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. And toil and hardships... Through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from these things, there is a daily pressure on me and anxiety for all the churches. Wow. That sounds really bad. Why aren't you totally depressed? Uh, Because the Lord that I serve was carried along and used this exact same verse out of Isaiah every time the Pharisees wanted to get in his face and say, hey, we don't agree with you. We don't like you. We think you're wrong. He would just quote this same verse out of Isaiah. And Jesus did everything right all the time. There was never something that should have been said that he didn't say, and there was never anything that he shouldn't have said that he said. He did everything perfect, inflection and tone, absolutely perfect every single time. He was where he needed to be, doing what he needed to be 100% of the time, and how did that end up for him? He was killed. Why? Because it's what God ordained to happen. Not because he messed up. 
He didn't sit there the night before going, man, oh man, if I had it all to do over again, I would have done some things differently. Like Judas, wouldn't have picked him. That was a mistake. Should have seen that coming. No. He's like, this is what the Lord asked for. My presence on the, in the world is God's teaching of what faithful presence looks like. I was sent here to do my Father's will, which is to die for you, to pay the penalty for your sins so that you can stop thinking that the way you're going to merit favor with the Father is by doing a whole bunch of good things and measuring up and having a CV or, or a, you know, a, a lapel full of buttons and medals that say he's an amazing person and so now I can stand before my Lord. No, the gospel says you don't need to do any of that stuff. You don't need to work to have presence of the Father. You just need to have the gospel. The gospel removes this whiplash between triumphalism and despair that so many of us are constantly facing. And so the gospel invites us to a different response, a response of faithful presence, a response of being where we're supposed to be, doing what we're supposed to do right there. We're not called to change the world. We're not called to have victory over everything. Here's what we're called to do. Welcome all who come, proclaim the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is what a faithful presence looks like. You do not have to change the world. You do not have to measure up. You do not have to have perfect children. You do not have to have a perfect marriage. You do not have to be the best employee. What you have to do is believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Nothing else. I want to close on this. In Washington, D.C., there are three eschatologies available. Eschatology, kids, here's what eschatology is. Have you seen uh, the Marvel movie, uh, you know, Age of Ultron, Endgame, or Infinity War, Endgame, or whatever it is? Endgame is eschatology. It's how everything ends. There's three of them available in Washington. One is called Make America Great Again. So if you just closed your eyes and you imagine that the person who wanted to make America great again got to basically speak everything he wanted into existence, that's the picture of it. And now imagine that there's somebody else who says, well, that's not the way things should end at all. The way things should end is we should build back better. Notice again that it's a statement about the way things are and the statement the way things should be. And imagine that that person could just speak it into existence and it would happen. Now, here's the thing. Neither of those people can speak it into existence. Here's, here's what those two eschatologies, those two endgames rely on. You. You have to make them happen. And imagine how you might feel if you're like, oh no, we almost made America great again, or we almost built back better, but now it's all falling apart. I've got to do something to stop this. I'm all fighting triumphalism and despair. My soul's ripping apart. There's a third eschatology available in Washington. You know what it's called? Making all things new. And now imagine, oh wait, you don't have to imagine because the person who's in charge of this one can speak it into existence. 
it does happen. It doesn't require you. You don't have to do anything. As a matter of fact, you could oppose it with every fiber of your being forever and it will still happen. Because Jesus Christ is the king of all things. He is the Holy One of God who is sent to relieve you from the whiplash of triumphalism and despair. And so if you find yourself around election day feeling like, I want you to ask yourself, which eschatology have you really believed? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God that is as hard on us as it needs to be and gives us as much hope as we need. In Christ's name, amen.